It was a gloomy afternoon on November 25, 1963. A bereaved family gathered at the Rose Hill Cemetery in Fort Worth, Texas for a funeral. The graveyard was filled with people, but the five family members present were the only ones in mourning. The deceased was Lee Harvey Oswald, and on the day of his burial, he was the most hated man in America. Three days before, on November 22nd, Oswald had assassinated President John F. Kennedy. Two days later, Lee was killed outside Dallas City Hall. While the rest of the country mourned the fallen president, Lee Oswald's brother, Robert, mother Marguerite, wife Marina, and two daughters, June and Rachel, buried him amidst a crowd of reporters, police officers, and Secret Service. There weren't enough mourners to move the coffin. Robert had to ask some of the reporters to serve as pallbearers. The minister didn't show up. A local reverend was drafted to administer the funeral. He did so quickly and quietly, hoping to distance himself from the grieving family as much as possible. The sermon ended. The casket was lowered into the ground. Police escorted the family away. The reporters dispersed. There was nothing left to do but grieve and wonder how this could have happened. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Every week, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. Welcome to Assassinations on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm your host, Bill. This is our third and final episode on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, who was killed on November 22, 1963, by Lee Harvey Oswald. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Monday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. Over the previous two episodes, we've discussed the lives of the two most important characters in this story, 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, and his assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald. In our last episode, we discussed the final hours, minutes, and seconds of Kennedy's life, including his fateful journey to Parkland Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. But of course, there's so much more to this story. In this episode, we'll discuss the fallout of President Kennedy's death. We will cover both the immediate aftermath of the shooting and the legacy that the events of November 22, 1963, left on the nation and on the world. What follows is a generally accepted account of Lee Oswald's actions and whereabouts in the immediate aftermath of the shooting of President Kennedy. We'll be dealing with what is considered the official story. There are a number of conspiracy theories about Lee Oswald and the killing of President Kennedy. If that subject interests you, be sure to check out ParCast's other show, Conspiracy Theories. Robert Kennedy's phone was ringing. It was approximately 1.43 p.m. on the East Coast on November 22, 1963, and the United States Attorney General and brother to John Kennedy was having a productive day. That was about to change. 
On the line was J. Edgar Hoover, director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and no friend to Robert. Hoover was curt, saying only, quote, the president has been shot. It's believed to be fatal. Robert was overwhelmed, but he knew he had to act immediately. This wasn't just a family tragedy. Robert's adversary, Vice President Lyndon Johnson, was about to become the leader of the free world. Hoover called Robert back just over 20 minutes later and informed Robert that John was in very critical condition. By then, Robert had gotten in touch with one of Kennedy's aides at the Parkland Hospital in Dallas, where the president was being treated. This time, Robert was the one informing Hoover. John Kennedy, the president of the United States, was dead. At 12.45 p.m., while President Kennedy was on the operating table at Parkland Hospital, Marina Oswald was at Ruth Payne's house, where she was staying with her two young children. Recall from our last episode that Marina and the kids lived with Ruth in Irving, Texas, while Lee stayed in a rented room in Dallas, closer to work. Marina was outside when Ruth called to her with the news. The president had been shot. Marina's thoughts didn't conjure sympathy or fear for President Kennedy. She was more worried about her husband and the rifle she knew he kept in Ruth's garage. Seven months prior, in April of 1963, Lee had attempted to shoot retired, disgraced Army General Edwin Walker. Lee had confessed the attempted assassination to Marina and had promised her he would never try something like that again. Now, Marina feared Lee had done something terrible. She went to Ruth's garage and spotted the bundle of blankets where Lee kept his rifle. It appeared undisturbed. She breathed a sigh of relief and returned inside, without double-checking to confirm that the rifle was really there. She didn't think about the odd fact that Lee had come by the house the night before in a deviation from his usual schedule. She also didn't recall the long, paper-wrapped package he had taken with him when he left that morning. I was in first grade on the reading bench when they announced it in school. I was six years old, so I'll never forget that. We could spend an entire episode on Oswald's timeline, from when Kennedy was shot to Oswald's arrest just 70 minutes later. But here are the key events. Oswald got away from the Texas School Book Depository building minutes after the last gunshot echoed across the plaza at 12.30 in the afternoon. Amidst the crowded chaos of Dealey Plaza, Oswald slipped away and flagged down a bus. As Lee took his seat, deputies on the ground were identifying the depository building as the source of the shots. Officers entered the building and ordered the employees to take account of anyone who might be missing. They began working their way up to the sixth floor, looking for signs of the shooter. As far as they knew, the gunman was still in the building. None of them knew at that point that the shooter was moving away from the building on a bus. The bus didn't go far. On Elm Street, a few blocks from Dealey Plaza, the bus hit bumper-to-bumper traffic. The city was starting to experience gridlock as news of the shooting spread. He got off and walked four blocks south, where the traffic was still manageable, and found a cab that was willing to take him the two miles to his apartment. At the same time, just before 1 p.m., 
Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett was dispatched to Oak Cliff, the area southeast of downtown Dallas. Dispatcher Murray Jackson had realized that with so many officers converging on Dealey Plaza, there would be few men to manage any crimes in the surrounding areas. Oswald reached his home, a room he rented in the Oak Cliff area. There, he recovered his jacket and his revolver, which he had bought when he purchased his rifle. He set out on foot, walking alone, just as the doctors at Parkland Hospital were declaring President Kennedy officially deceased. Calls were coming in from the police who were interviewing witnesses on the ground. The suspect was likely a white male with a slender frame, about 5'10". As Tippett patrolled the streets of Oak Cliff, he spotted a man who met that description walking with his hands in his pockets. It was 10 minutes after one when Officer Tippett pulled his squad car up behind Oswald slowly and called out to him. Witnesses saw Oswald approach Tippett's vehicle. The two men spoke and then Tippett got out of the car. Tippett didn't keep his eyes on Oswald as he moved around to the front of his squad car. He likely didn't even see Oswald pull the 38 revolver from his jacket pocket until it was too late. Oswald shot Tippett four times. One of the bullets struck the officer in the head. Lee fled the crime scene as the nearby witnesses called the police. He turned the corner to a mostly empty street and then moved two blocks north of the spot where he shot Tippett. The street seemed empty, and Oswald might have even thought he'd made a clean escape before ducking into a nearby movie theater. As Oswald was escaping on foot, Tippett was rushed to the nearby Methodist Hospital. He was declared dead on arrival. The doctors surmised that the gunshot to his head had killed him instantly. Back on 10th Street, Oswald hadn't realized that he'd been spotted by Johnny Brewer, a shoe store manager who worked across the street from the cinema. Like most people in Dallas and across the country, Brewer had been listening to radio coverage of the shooting. Knowing that he was only a few miles from Dealey Plaza, Brewer had been on the lookout for suspicious characters. Oswald, with his hands in his pockets and eyes on the ground, going about his day as if the president hadn't just been shot, definitely seemed suspicious to Brewer. And that was before he rushed into the theater building without paying for a ticket. Brewer crossed the street and approached Julia Postal, the ticket taker. He asked about the man who had just entered. Julia realized that Oswald hadn't paid for his ticket. She had been listening to the radio coverage of Kennedy's shooting and hadn't even noticed him. At Brewer's insistence, Julia called the police at 1.44 p.m. The area was already swarming with police on account of the shooting of Officer Tippett. Officers were on the scene at the theater within three minutes. They quickly surrounded the building and rushed into the auditorium. As the programmed double feature, Cry of Battle and War is Hell played in the background, police blocked the exits and started to look among the audience for anyone who fit Oswald's description. Brewer had made contact with the officers and was the man who pointed out Oswald in the left center aisle of the auditorium. Patrolman Nick McDonald reached Oswald first. As the officer moved on Oswald to check him for weapons, Oswald shrugged, saying, well, it's all over now. He punched McDonald in the face. 
The rest of the officers were on Oswald in seconds, tackling him to the ground. Oswald tried to use his gun, but it was wrestled away from him. They managed to get him in handcuffs. Oswald screamed over and over that he was innocent and that he was a victim of police brutality as he was dragged outside. Given that he had just punched a police officer, his complaints fell on deaf ears. Reporters were already swarming outside the theater when police brought Oswald out in handcuffs. I didn't shoot anybody, sir. I haven't been told what I'm here for. You have a lawyer? No, sir, I don't. Police were hard-pressed to hold back the press and the growing crowd of people who assumed Oswald was the one who had shot Kennedy. The citizens were angry, and they were looking to get their hands on Lee. Officers got Oswald into the car and started the trip to City Hall, where the FBI and Secret Service were waiting to interrogate him. Less than two hours after the president had been shot, police officers had their man. We'll discuss Oswald's interrogation by law enforcement and how President Kennedy's body almost didn't make it out of Dallas right after this. Now, back to the story. While police were pursuing the president's shooter across the downtown Dallas area, the drama at Parkland Hospital was becoming even more intense. Following the official declaration of the president's death, the Secret Service agents and presidential staff knew they had to move. Acting President Lyndon Johnson was already en route to Lovefield Airport, where Air Force One was fueling up. The new president, naturally, wanted to get back to Washington as soon as possible, in order to set about implementing a smooth transition. It was an unspoken agreement that the plane wouldn't take off without Jackie Kennedy and John's body. However, moving the body proved to be something of a challenge. While agents and aides were wrapping Kennedy's body and moving it to a coffin, Dallas County Medical Examiner Earl Rose announced on the hospital intercom that the body would not be going anywhere until an autopsy had been performed. As odd as it may seem, the murder of a president was only a federal crime if the killing occurred on federal land. Kennedy's murder was technically under the jurisdiction of the Dallas Police Department, and Texas law required that an autopsy be performed immediately when a homicide occurs. As you can imagine, it didn't go over well when Rose attempted to enforce this law and prevent the agents from leaving with Kennedy's body. There was a brawl in the hallway outside Trauma Room 1 as Secret Service agents forced the coffin outside. They pushed Rose and the objecting police officers aside, not caring that they were having to get physical in order to move Kennedy. The body was transported to Love Field, where just two and a half hours previously, John and Jackie Kennedy had arrived in Dallas, all smiles and optimism. With the deceased John Kennedy and his widow on board, Johnson was sworn in on Air Force One just before 2.40 p.m. Shortly after, the plane took off for Washington, D.C. There, Johnson would enter the White House for the first time as president, and Kennedy's body would be transported to Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland for a delayed autopsy. Meanwhile, Dallas law enforcement and the FBI were beginning to circulate the name Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee had refused to identify himself to the police who arrested him. 
Attempts to identify him were complicated by the fact that Lee had two IDs on him when he was caught. His real ID and the fake passport he made for himself under the name Alec Heidel. Once Oswald was booked in the basement of City Hall, his picture was circulated to local police and to FBI offices around the country. Officers still on the ground at Dealey Plaza showed Lee's picture to his fellow employees at the Texas Book Depository. Bill Kelly, a foreman there, identified Oswald by name to the police. In the FBI's Dallas office, Agent James Hostey was prepping to interrogate the suspect in the Kennedy shooting when he first read Oswald's name on the agency-wide bulletin. He knew immediately that he, and by extension, the FBI was in serious trouble. Hosty knew the name. In fact, the FBI file on Oswald was in the mailroom, just feet away from Hosty's office. Recall that from 1959 to 1962, Lee lived in the Soviet Union as part of a failed attempt to defect from the United States. Lee and Marina had been on the FBI's radar as possible foreign agents ever since they returned to America. The Bureau's interest in Lee had spiked earlier in 1963 when it became aware that Lee had traveled to Mexico City and attempted to make contact with the Soviet Embassy. Hostie himself had actually gone to question Marina Oswald about her and Lee's activities just a few weeks prior in early November of 1963. Hostie recalled a note he had received on November 12th, just 10 days before Kennedy was shot. The writer of the unsigned note demanded that Hostie leave his wife alone or else he would take action against the FBI. Hostie knew immediately this couldn't be a coincidence. Oswald must have written the note, and he was likely the man who shot Kennedy. This meant that a man who was supposed to be under watch by the FBI had managed to kill an American president in broad daylight. The FBI would be taken to task if this news got out, but he didn't have time to worry about it just yet. He had to meet Dallas Police Chief of Homicide, Will Fritz, in preparation for Oswald's interrogation. Hostie and Fritz interrogated Lee for hours. Lee had already been identified in a lineup as the man who shot Tippett. But the Dallas police and the FBI knew that Lee was likely also Kennedy's shooter. Lee didn't make things easy for them. He was combative and evasive, berating Hostie for harassing his wife and the police in general for abusing him during the arrest. He kept demanding a lawyer, but when Fritz offered to provide a public defender, Oswald responded that he would only accept John Apt as his lawyer. Apt was the chief counsel for the Communist Party of the United States and was unavailable at the time. Oswald had a fairly cavalier attitude given the evidence stacked against him. By 7 p.m., Dallas police and FBI had recovered the rifle from the depository and were in the process of linking it to Oswald. But the police knew by then they had enough to charge Lee for his other murder. Judge David Johnson was summoned to City Hall, and at 7.10 p.m., Lee Oswald was formally charged for the murder of Officer J.D. Tippett. With this charge, police ensured that they could hold Oswald for as long as they needed while they continued to gather evidence linking Oswald to the Kennedy shooting. 
It was nearly 6 p.m. on the East Coast when Air Force One touched down at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. Robert Kennedy was waiting for the plane when it landed, ready to reach his sister-in-law and offer what comfort he could. While President Johnson and his entourage headed to the White House, John Kennedy's body was taken to Bethesda Naval Hospital, where doctors J.J. Humes and J. Thornton Boswell began the president's delayed autopsy. The autopsy lasted over four hours, finally concluding at 12.30 in the afternoon on Saturday, November 23, 1963, with the official cause of death being listed as a gunshot wound to the head. The president's body was then moved to Gawler's Funeral Home in Washington, where it would be prepped for the days-long funeral proceedings. Back in Dallas, the investigation into the shooting was about to hit another break. In the 11-plus hours since Lee Oswald had been arrested and identified, Dallas police and the FBI had managed to track his movements, creating a timeline that took him from the Book Depository Building to the Texas theater where he was arrested. They had the rifle and the shell casings and had tracked the gun's serial number to Klein's sporting goods store in Chicago. It took nearly four hours, but the agents present finally discovered the order receipt for the rifle. The receipt was for one A. Heidel of Dallas, Texas. This matched up with the fake ID police had found on Oswald when he was arrested. In Dallas at around midnight, Judge Johnson and District Attorney Henry Wade held a press conference on the steps of City Hall. They announced that Oswald was in custody, he had been charged with Tippett's murder, and they were expecting to file charges for Kennedy's murder soon, based on the evidence they had already gathered. The plan after the conference was to wait until morning to charge Oswald for Kennedy's murder. But Texas law grants the accused the right to know the charges against you as soon as such charges are made. At around 1.35 a.m. on the morning of November 23, 1963, just over 12 hours after John Kennedy was pronounced dead, Lee Harvey Oswald was formally charged with assassinating the president. The sun rose on the 23rd over a grieving nation. John Kennedy's body had been returned to the White House at 4.30 in the morning, following an embalming and cosmetic preparation for his funeral. The body was taken to the East Wing, where at the request of the former First Lady, it was covered by a black drape. It would remain there for a period of 24 hours. Jackie Kennedy had not left her husband's side since they had stepped off the plane in Dallas less than a full day ago. With John's body safely in the East Wing and respectfully covered, she finally returned to her private quarters. Outside, a crowd of tens of thousands of people held vigil for the fallen president. In Dallas, law enforcement continued reckoning with Lee Harvey Oswald and the logistical challenge of holding him. Technically, Lee should have been transferred to Dallas police headquarters to be held in the county jail after he was charged. But the crowd of reporters camped outside City Hall, hoping to get a shot at talking to Oswald, created a security nightmare. Protecting Oswald during the move would be extremely difficult, and Dallas police didn't want to move him until they had a firm plan in order. Lee was held for the duration of the 23rd while this plan was drafted. 
During that time, he was finally allowed to see his family. He saw Marina and Marguerite first. Marina Oswald couldn't bring herself to ask her husband if he'd done the terrible thing he'd been charged with. But she knew almost immediately that he had. In her own words, Lee would have been raising hell about the unfair persecution against him if he was innocent. Lee's brother Robert sat with Lee after Marina and Marguerite. Robert hoped he might get some explanation from Lee. But Lee just denied the charges and ordered Robert to make contact with John Apt about serving as Lee's attorney. Robert had been fully cooperating with law enforcement ever since he had learned of Lee's involvement. But on the 23rd, as Robert left Dallas City Hall to return to the hotel where the Secret Service had put up his family, he simply said that the man he had spoken to in the interrogation room was a stranger to him. Late in the evening of the 23rd, it was decided that Oswald wouldn't be moved at night. It would be too easy for an attacker to reach him from the cover of darkness. The reporters camped outside City Hall were all informed that they could go home and that Oswald would be moved from City Hall the following morning. Though the press would cause a security hazard, Dallas police knew they needed to be on good terms with the reporters. The eyes of the nation were on them. On the morning of Sunday, November 24, 1963, the Dallas Times-Herald published a piece called My Dear Caroline, a letter from a Dallas resident to the young Caroline Kennedy, John and Jackie's daughter. It was a devastating read and had a particularly profound effect on one Jack Ruby, a Dallas nightclub owner. Ruby had loved President Kennedy and considered himself a patriot. Ruby was known to most of the Dallas police, and he had spent the previous two days dealing with his grief by trying to help out the police any way he could. Ruby had hardly slept since Kennedy was shot. He couldn't sleep. He was filled with sorrow, with grief, and with rage at Oswald for shooting the president. The Dallas press began gathering in the garage of City Hall at 9 a.m. in preparation for Oswald's transfer. At 9.45, officers appeared and started to push the press back so as to provide a safe, clear path for Oswald to reach the armored car that was to transport him to the county jail. Secret Service had interrogated Oswald all morning until after 11 a.m. Dallas Police Chief Jeff Curry finally had to intervene. The armored car was waiting downstairs and the press wouldn't be held back for long. At around this same time, Jack Ruby was driving to Dealey Plaza on his way to work to stop and see the wreaths set out in memoriam for the president. His path took him past City Hall. Ruby was surprised at the size of the crowd he saw. It was well after 11, and all the reports had said Oswald was going to be moved at 10. Realizing that Oswald still might be at City Hall, Ruby parked across the street and headed into a nearby Western Union where he planned to wire money to one of his employees. He carried with him the revolver that he often kept on his person. Chief Curry and Captain Fritz made a last-minute decision to put Oswald in one of the cars and leave the armored van empty as a decoy for anyone who might attack the police convoy. This was at 11.10, 
as things were growing more chaotic in the garage basement. Orders were sent down to arrange for an additional car to be added to the convoy. At 11.19, Oswald was handcuffed in preparation for his move. Detective Jim Lavelle half-joked that if anyone shot at Oswald, he hoped they were as good a shot as Lee. Lee responded that no one was going to shoot him that day. They headed down to the garage at 11.20. The press lit up with activity as they heard Lee and the escort approaching. Cameras rolled, lights were primed, everyone was geared to get good shots of the man who had killed Kennedy. Detective Lavelle and Captain Fisk covered their eyes from the blinding camera lights as they ushered Oswald across the basement. To their surprise, the car they ordered wasn't in place. It was being blocked by the crowd of reporters. The escort slowed down, waiting for the car to get through the crowd to them. As they waited and the swarming reporters tried to beat each other to ask Oswald questions, a man suddenly emerged from the crowd, his arm outstretched, aimed at Lee. Jack Ruby had managed to slip past the police guard and into the garage just as Oswald was being brought out. Detective Lavelle recognized Jack. Ruby was familiar with a lot of Dallas police officers. Lavelle yelled, Jack, don't. It was too late. NBC was broadcasting the transfer live. The entire nation saw Lee Oswald get shot. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's the man with a gun. No question about it, Oswald has been shot. We'll cover Lee Oswald's final moments in just a few minutes. But first... Now, back to the story. At 11.21 a.m. on Sunday, November 24, 1963, Lee Oswald was shot in the stomach by nightclub owner Jack Ruby. Detective Billy H. Cumbest had been one of the police officers who recognized Ruby just before the shooting. As Dallas police officers and FBI agents struggle to tackle Ruby and hold back the chaotic mob of reporters, Cumbess knelt at Oswald's side. The abdomen is among the worst parts of the body someone can be shot in. A bullet can fragment and rupture multiple abdominal organs, causing internal bleeding. Cumbest knew this. He knew Oswald's chances were slim. When he knelt by Oswald, he asked if Lee had anything he'd like to say. After all, it may be his last chance to speak. Oswald said nothing and quickly lost consciousness. The call buzzed across the campus of Parkland Hospital. An ambulance was en route and the patient had been shot in the stomach. Lee Oswald was wheeled into the trauma wing at 11.30 a.m., just nine minutes after he'd been shot. As the nurses pushed him toward the trauma rooms, someone made the decision to not treat Lee in trauma room one, which was vacant. Hippocratic oath or no, it just seemed wrong to treat Oswald in the same room where Kennedy died. Oswald was taken across the hall to trauma room two. Doctors Malcolm Perry and Ronald Jones, who just two days previous had tried to save John Kennedy's life in that very hospital, rushed in and got to work on their new patient. Jack Ruby would later say that his plan had been to shoot Oswald three times, 
Though Ruby only managed to get off one shot before he was taken down, his aim had been true enough. The bullet had damaged or destroyed the majority of Lee's abdominal organs. His spleen had been shredded, his kidneys were hemorrhaging, and his stomach cavity was filling up with blood from ruptured heart vessels. Oswald was blue from blood loss when he arrived at the hospital. He was unconscious but alive. It seemed in that moment there might actually be a chance to save him. Dr. Perry ordered Oswald move to the second floor to be prepped for surgery. They operated on him for over an hour. Oswald's heartbeat dipped and dipped and didn't come up. Surgeons tried a defibrillator to restart Oswald's heart. It didn't take. At 1.07 p.m., almost exactly two days after John Kennedy had died in that very hospital, Lee Harvey Oswald was pronounced dead. Three men were buried on Monday, November 25, 1963. The first was the 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. Following two days of private and public wakes and a final mass at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., Kennedy was laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery before politicians, soldiers, foreign dignitaries, and tens of thousands of citizens, not to mention millions more watching at home from their televisions. The second funeral was for Officer J.D. Tippett. 700 police officers and 1,500 citizens of Dallas attended Tippett's funeral at Beckley Hills Baptist Church. Tippett's story caught national attention, and the citizens of the nation generously donated to Tippett's surviving wife and three children. He was buried in Laurel Land Memorial Park. Finally, Lee Oswald was buried at Rose Hill Cemetery in Fort Worth. Only his family mourned him. In 1964, Jack Ruby was found guilty of murdering Lee Oswald and sentenced to death. The death sentence was overturned, but Ruby died of lung cancer before his retrial in 1967. In the year 1800, philosopher Johann Fitke wrote, quote, you cannot remove a single grain of sand without thereby changing something throughout all parts of the immeasurable whole, end quote. This philosophy would come to define chaos theory, or the belief that all events are the result of seemingly random choices that have occurred throughout all time. President Kennedy's death had profound, long-lasting effects on the nation. It has long been proposed that had Kennedy lived to see a second term, he would have sought a diplomatic solution to the Vietnam War, or at the very least, not committed more troops to the conflict. This theory has been fiercely debated by historians for decades, and it's easy to see why. President Johnson escalated U.S. involvement in Vietnam to disastrous results, embodied best by the 1968 Tet Offensive. Shortly after the U.S. government had declared the Vietnam War all but over, the North Vietnamese Army launched a surprise coordinated assault on South Vietnamese bases. Though the military operation was a failure, it was a major political and psychological victory of the American troops. One can only wonder if Kennedy would have made such a blunder. 
One thing that seems clearer is that Kennedy's death directly impacted the election of Richard Nixon in the 1968 presidential election. Johnson was eligible to run against Nixon for his second elected term as an incumbent president. However, the disastrous military failure of the 1968 Tet Offensive had all but broken Johnson personally and left a black mark on his presidency. He withdrew from the race suddenly in March of 1968, leaving the Democratic Party without clear leadership. The obvious front-runner was John Kennedy's brother, Robert Kennedy, who had been actively campaigning against Johnson for the Democratic candidacy that year. However, tragedy would again strike the Kennedy family on June 5, 1968. Shortly after winning the California Democratic primary, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. With their two most obvious picks no longer available, the Democrats were left with no other option but Hubert Humphrey, Johnson's vice president. The turmoil in the Democratic Party left the election wide open for a Republican win. Had Kennedy been alive during this time, he would have been able to provide the leadership that the Democratic Party needed and even seen to a Democratic victory in 1968. Nixon's presidency was defined by the Watergate scandal, which all but destroyed public trust in presidency. Had Kennedy lived, Watergate might never have happened. Had Kennedy lived to a second term, the historic voting rights legislation of the 1960s may have turned out differently, or maybe even not occurred at all. President Johnson successfully oversaw the passage of three major civil rights laws. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed discrimination based on race, sex, religion, or national origin. The Voting Rights Act of 1968 helped guarantee that black citizens could exercise their right to vote. Finally, the Fair Housing Act of 1968 provided equal housing opportunities, regardless of race. A big part of Johnson's success in passing these laws was the fact that he was from the South, where segregation and racism were most rampant. Johnson was able to rally the support of his fellow Southern Democrats who held him in high regard. Kennedy historians have speculated that if JFK had lived to run for a second term in 1964, he would have dropped Johnson from the ticket. Robert Kennedy would have been John's likely replacement VP in preparation for his own 1968 presidential bid. Without Johnson's help, it's unlikely that Kennedy would have had the necessary sway over the Southern Democrats that would have been required to pass all three acts. On a cultural level, Kennedy's death gave rise to a mainstream interest in conspiracy theories that persists to this day. The random senselessness of Kennedy's death and the mystery around Oswald created a strong society-wide urge to find meaning in catastrophic events. John F. Kennedy had the ability to affect just about every aspect of modern life. With his death, the world was left with innumerable questions about how things would be different if he had lived. Oswald was obsessed with his place in history it would seem that his actions granted him the notoriety he wanted. The one thing we can be certain of amidst all the chaos and confusion is this. John Kennedy's assassination changed the world. 
Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We hope you enjoyed our series on the assassination of John F. Kennedy. If you're looking for more episodes or other stories of murder and crime, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. See you next Monday. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. (laughs) ¶¶